Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society. My name is Håkon Ekonomo, review editor of Diplomatica. You will now hear an interview with Professor Jeremy Black from the University of Exeter on his 2010 publication, A History of Diplomacy. Enjoy! And remember to check out Diplomatica for more publications, reviews and interviews. Hello, it's Jeremy Black. Hi, it's Håkon Ekonomo calling. Um, nice to speak to you, Håkon. Very nice to speak to you as well. First of all, um, Professor Jeremy Black, thank you for taking the time. Um, and um, I'll just dive right into the first question. Uh, so first, being perhaps the world's most prolific historian on these subjects, could you could you give us a bit of a um, a bit about your background and how you became drawn to the topic of diplomacy, foreign policy, and international relations? Thank you. Well, I think that's interesting, not so much because of me, but because it exemplifies the chance role. What the English term would be serendipitous, though it's like one of the many words in the English language which is easier to pronounce than to spell, but the role of chance in one's academic development. And I make that point because all too often when you read obituaries or historiography as a whole, it's presented as some kind of pattern of seamless and inevitable development, and that was certainly not the case for me. So the chance factor was, first of all, as an undergraduate, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, and in the third year at Cambridge, you did a source-based um, subject, uh, which was designed to get you used to using documents, uh, obviously printed documents, unfortunately, and to uh, provide some detail. And, you know, I went in the end of my second year and listened to a whole series of taster lectures, and there was nothing inevitable about which one, which subject I should do. It wasn't that one said to me, this must be mine, and sprinkled all over it. But the one that I thought was most interesting was one on Britain and Europe from 1783 to 93. And I did uh, that subject and I enjoyed it. I liked uh, reading the documentation. I found it exciting. I found a lot of the secondary literature. Whilst interesting on the diplomacy, not so good at linking the diplomacy to a more general, domestically grounded foreign policy. And what I decided to do, uh, if I got a grant to do research, was to do a doctorate on that period, and more particularly on the failure of the Anglo-French attempt at a alignment. Um, Britain and France signed a commercial treaty. It was designed by Vergen, the French foreign minister, and by a number of figures in Britain to lead to a reconciliation between the two powers, and it failed. And what I wanted to do was to look at that and to relate it in particular to tensions within the British idea, or British ideas on foreign policy. And so that was what I put in to do my doctorate on. And I was then told that I couldn't or shouldn't, uh, the, it was never really clarified, because somebody was already doing a thesis on that subject in London. Now, again, this is the role of chance. In practical terms, he never finished. So, so, so instead of which, I cast back to do the previous period of a failure of an Anglo-French alliance. And I thought in particular of looking at the 1730s, in 1730, Britain and, Ally and France were allies, had been allies since 1716. By 1740, they were close to combat, although in fact, they did not start fighting till 1743. So I thought I would start on that, and I began doctoral work on that, and I thought I would start the, as it were, by doing a kind of background chapter, which would cover the period 1727 to 1731, when the alliance uh, collapsed, and instead of which that became the thesis. Now, to take the level of chance a bit further, we're looking here, um, by the time I was looking for jobs, at 1980. At that stage, there was a real close down in the British academic world, and I was very fortunate that a job came up as the early modern Europeanist at uh, Durham. And I was very fortunate that they defined early modern European history as the period from 1550 or 1500 to 1750. So if I'd ended up doing my thesis on the 1780s, I would have been seen as out of court. And I was also fortunate that in practical terms, they interviewed six people for the job. 
And, you know, they had a discussion with me. The major thing that I that I published a small piece on the inconsistency of Edmund Burke's views on foreign policy, and they asked me about that in some detail. Um, but they also asked me what was the use, from the point of view of teaching European history, of somebody with a background in diplomatic relations. And I said to them, well, if you work on diplomatic relations or international, the international system, then you have to know, my quote was, a little bit about everything. <laughs> and that actually was something that really appealed to them because the other five people they'd interviewed, all of whom were older scholars and with you know some publications to their note, um, it was a prestigious university, um, were all people who essentially said, I'm a specialist in French history or German history or whatever, but no, I don't know and I don't care about other things, which was very foolish of them. And they took me as the ingenue um, on that basis. So in a sense, I owe my job, my start in the profession, to my interest in diplomatic history. Well, then, <laughs> thanks for that. And I think that also goes to to the point about uh, writing history as well. Uh, with well, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I think that that does play a role. And obviously, if one tends to focus on what one has one's done oneself, it's not that one's more important, it's just one knows more about it. I certainly think that um, uh, gaining access to archives is very important. Um, for me, I was extraordinarily fortunate that essentially chance connections uh, got me into the papers of James uh, First Earl Wardgrave, who'd been British ambassador in Vienna in the end of the 1720s and was then in Paris for the entire 1730s. And his private papers were fascinating. They had not been studied for the perspective that I could bring from them, and well, they'd not really been studied at all. And that was extraordinarily important. And I, you know, I also conceptually, and I think, think this is the main uh, point I'd like to bring out, because in the, the 1980s, I did write a lot in foreign policy, and then I wrote, I wrote a lot, a series of books again subsequently, particularly in the 20-teens on 18th century British foreign policy. And my approach was always, I can't see the point of writing a book in which you essentially say what other people have said or offer footnotes on them. My approach essentially was to argue that the existing tradition of the treatment of foreign policy in that period, which centred on the figure of Ragnald Hatton, who was a professor at the London School of Economics and who had you know, a number of uh, pupils, um, and I felt that they really didn't understand domestic British politics, and therefore they never understood what I would call the treasury view, mm. they, nor did they, un so in other words, I felt that their appreciation of government dynamics was deficient, nor did I feel that they understood the... Um, the nature and the weight of public opinion. So repeatedly in their works, and you can see this in, for example, Hamish Scott's book on British foreign policy in the age of the American Revolution, which came out in 1990, repeatedly in their works, foreign, pol foreign public opinion appears as foolish, um, un you know, sort of xenophobic, uh, unwilling to appreciate the, the burdens that should necessarily come, welcome it come from commitments internationally. And I felt that that told you more about their views on the present than it acted as an understanding of the nature of the 18th century British system and go of government and politics. Yes, and, and it seems so already from a very early stage, you're doing two things that are quite prevalent in this, uh, the publication that we're discussing today, uh, History on Diplomacy, uh, namely to widen the concept of what, what entails uh, foreign policy, what makes foreign policy, and also to widen the scope or perhaps blur the lines a little bit between professional and private particularly on diplomats uh, yes, in the I field. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, if I can give you a comment just on the present day very quickly, I know we're going to come back to that, but to give you something that, in case we don't come back to this <laughs> uh, particular point, um, this is exemplified at the moment by the extent to which in Britain, as in other states, Britain isn't unique. There is the role of think tanks, there is the role uh, within those of public intellectuals, and individuals in that position, I can think, for example, of the British historian John Bew, uh, a 20th century specialist, who is, you know, a formal advisor.
Wright, who having worked in the think tank policy exchange, is now a formal advisor of the British government in its current strategy review. Mm. And you would be very foolish if you were to write a history of British foreign policy um, in the late 20-teens or early 2020s if you didn't look at think tanks like Policy Exchange. And the same thing I think you could say for other countries. I mean, it often varies depending upon which political party is in power, though, though that's not the only factor. And if you wind back to the 18th century, you have um, the age of print, so you have the end of pre-publication censorship of British periodicals in the 1690s. Uh, you have a sort of attempt to understand and ground a kind of parliamentary debate on foreign policy in which, by the very nature of things, the majority of the people taking part are not office holders under the crown. Mm. And therefore, their views, their expertise, their opinions are all, are all of consequence. Yeah, yes, and of course, as you also highlight uh, very well, uh, the the diplomat in the field, the envoy, the ambassador, is also continuously blurring those lines to get access, to get the relevant information wherever they are. So that's also an important uh, uh, distinction uh, uh, and also a, an important caveat to bring into to our present thinking about foreign politics and, and, and diplomacy, right? Yes, I would agree entirely. And I, I've always felt that one of the deficiencies of the classic diplomatic history is that it was too much history written from the perspective of the diplomats, but also in looking at motivation, in looking at the formulation of policy. If you look at the British case, it was too much um, history written from the perspective of the secretaries of state or from the equivalent of the subsequently the foreign office and the French equivalent. Well, what we what was the case then and what is the case now um, is that the uh, formal role and informal role of other ministers and bureaucrats could be much more consequential. And I mentioned the Treasury view, um, but also one would be talking, for example, in many states of the view of the, of the military, uh, both land power and naval power. One would be talking about increasingly in the modern world an engagement with other departments of, of state, all of which have an interest and all of which answer to and interact with public lobbies and public opinion in those particular fields. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so so if we um, pivot to, to the next... Uh, uh, question, um, which is more to do with the book itself, which you, we've, we've already touched upon, but could you perhaps outline for us how you, you came about to write a book on diplomacy, a history of diplomacy from the 1400s until the then present, so 2010? Or what, in other words, uh, were the ideas and motivations behind it? Well, thank you. Yes, I think that's uh, an interesting question. Um, I mean, in a sense, first of all, I had already written quite a lot about British diplomats and diplomacy, and indeed, I published a book in two thousand and one on British diplomats and diplomacy from sixteen eighty eight to eighteen hundred, mm -hmm. and I'd also written a book on French foreign policy in the eighteenth century and articles on Austrian and Bavarian foreign policy. So I was already interested in the idea of putting all of these together, but. The reality for my history of diplomacy, and I called it a history, not the history, deliberately, mm. because I believe there are different ways of cutting the historical cake, and I loathe people who pretend to being de definitive. I, I think they are dangerously egocentric and also misleading intellectually. So what I was particularly motivated by, and I tend to write books, or I certainly tended to write books, when I felt the existing accounts were flawed. In other words, you're putting a lot of time and effort into it. The return that you would get is, is limited, um, so that there's, to my mind, no reason to do this unless you feel that you are intellectually helping to advance a subject, or at least to offer different views, and readers can then make their own uh, assessment of it. And my view was that too much of the account of international relations and diplomatic history was, as we've already discussed, narrowly based archivally, but also 
that there was a intellectual focus on the Westphalian settlement and the consequences of that. And I felt that what this was was a very Western-centric account of diplomacy. And, uh, I mean, you know, for fairly obvious reasons, the Westphalian settlement meant absolutely nothing um, in terms not just of, um, you know, where the majority of the world's population lived, uh, but also it meant absolutely nothing in practical terms as far as the Europeans were concerned outside Europe. But so what I felt needed doing was at least trying to offer some differing suggestions. And you will notice, for example, to that effect, I did not have a chronological beer of division, for example, at 1648. Chapter 2 goes from 1600 to 1690. I also tried, and, you know, obviously one's expertise was only so much, and also, bluntly and brutally, I was doing a very full teaching load, and um, I also tried to discuss the situation prior to the Renaissance period, because, as you will know, the standard account in the traditional literature is that as it were, the diplomatic system began with modernity and began with the Italian wars and began with the Renaissance and you get you know, famous people like William Robertson writing in those terms. And what I argued was that this was misleading. Well, I actually argued it was inaccurate. Um, and I wanted to add a prehistory that looked significantly at what went on before 1450. And I think that that, um, you know, that that uh, is interesting. I mean, obviously, it could be taken a lot further, but it's interesting. And that was designed to ground what followed. And then in each of the chapters, I tried to stand on their head uh, the classic account of diplomacy in that period in order to try and look, as you've correctly said, at broader patterns of influence in state-to-state relations. Um, and also to subvert the notion of some kind of A, progressive account towards the present, and B, linked to that, of modernity being a matter of modernization. Mm. And the last point is I'd already published uh, an article, one of my first articles, in fact, in which I tried to draw attention to the deficiencies of the idea of the classic use of the balance of power theory. And I argued in that piece that the balance of power was a matter of rhetoric as much as analysis, that the two could not be separated, and people's failure to understand that rhetoric is utilitarian as, um, itself, as well as being interesting in terms of broader intellectual patterns, meant that they really couldn't handle the conceptualization of the subject, and I tried to take that through the history of diplomacy. So in many senses, it was an extraordinarily radical book. Um, I, obviously, if I was writing it today, and we'll discuss that, I would have said even more about China, but it was an extraordinarily radical book, but it did rest, and I will underline this because, you know, it makes one very unpopular, and British academia is, is run by a patronage system, and, you know, if you criticize the major figures, you go nowhere. Um, I, I, you know, so, you know, doing so yet again, I would say and underline the extent to which the existing orthodoxes, in my view, were deeply flawed. And that's a view I'm currently, in fact, writing something. I don't know whether I'll ever get it published, but just to try and get some of my ideas out uh, to myself, uh, re-looking at the period of British foreign policy attitudes from 1758 to 1790. And yet again, uh, rereading a lot of the literature, uh, I am struck by how flawed and limited intellectually so much of it is. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and I, I wonder also when you when you talk about it, um, there are two things that that strike me. One is that that uh, going to the Middle Ages as uh, as you do, um, and and even before that, um, and going also to various places uh, in the world rather than doing the kind of the classic. Uh, lineage back to antiquity um, whether that also has to do with what you see in that period that reminds you of a more fractured and less certain and state order if you will of the 19 
90s, 2000s, so the context in which you wrote it, so the late 2000s and 2010 when, when it was published, is there something there also that kind of spurred you to to go deeper, to go wider, uh, and also kind of uh, critically engage with that narrative that you saw as flawed and limited? Well, Harkon, you're being more perceptive than I am, so you're right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I hadn't really thought that through, but thank you. You're absolutely right. You will notice that in, for example, my discussion of the medieval period, there's really quite extensive consideration of the Chinese uh, notions then on international relations and trying to look at the ambiguities of the tribute relationship, for example, and the ambiguities of the notion of hegemony. So you're absolutely right. Um, but again, I mean, to just... I mean, I do, and I know I irritate people, but that's their problem. I do conceptually try and bridge subjects. So um, my first really big book on uh, military uh, history was War in the World, which Yale published, which came out in the mid-90s, and that covered the period 1450 to the present. And that had exactly the same drive to argue that we needed to recenter our account of military history around not just a narrative based on the experience of the West, but also an analysis based on the experience of the West, or indeed a rhetorical account of it. So all that nonsense about military revolutions and, you know, the French Revolution transforming war and total war as if Tamburlaine, you know, in some way was party taking part in some little exercise in limited warfare. I mean, it was absolutely obviously nonsense for military history. And in a sense, that conceptual trying to reorder the subject was part of what I was trying to do in the diplomatic one. Now, it was more interesting in the diplomatic one because bluntly, the intellectual caliber of the people that have written on diplomatic history tends to be greater because um, they're not so uh, focused on the, you know, on the tactical and battle approach. There's not quite the equivalent. You tend to have had more of an engagement, not least uh, with the idea of diplomatic systems, and as we've already mentioned, uh, notions of peace conferences, notions of specialised uh, ideas such as international law, etc., etc. Um, so what I was trying to do is to say, well, look, this is all very interesting, but what does it mean on the global scale? And if you look at it on the global scale, does that not compromise the standard account. Now, as you will know from looking at the book and from also my more detailed work on 17th and 18th century international relations, I argued that the standard account was wrong anyway in the sense that it underplayed the role of private diplomacies, uh, in other words, uh, diplomats and secretaries of state ignoring the formal structures. It mm. underplayed the role of, as we've already discussed, uh, bodies and uh, entities which were not formally part of the structure but which played a, ma a major role, it underplayed and misunderstood the nature of the Congress system. So I'd already argued that, and what I was trying to do in the history of diplomacy was to extrapolate that into a broader account which looked at it on the global scale, but also took it to the present. Yeah, all right, yes, um, and and you do that, I think, uh, also with, with a, as you say, a kind of a clear nerve and a clear also um, agenda of, of, of putting some assumptions on their head, as you say. Um, so could you, for the listeners, uh, uh, briefly, I know we covered some aspects of it, but briefly kind of outline the general structure, argument interventions of the book in, in, in the order as they appear in the book, um, just so they have a uh, kind of overview of, of what you're doing. Right, well, thank you. I mean, uh, I would urge everybody to read the book uh, because I think I've tried to do that. But let me, very briefly, the fundamental structure is chronological simply because that um, I find that an easiest way to organise the past. But in making it chronological, I deliberately choosing, for example, 1600, 1690, 1900 as chapter divides. There are other chapter divides. I deliberately try to move away from the notion of um, clear-cut uh, boundaries and clear-cut decisive changing changing points. So that's point one. Point two, I try at every stage to depart from the no nature of a uh, or fundamental, uh, being the Babylonian city, or fundamental account of diplomacy, either for that period or more generally. Mm -hmm. Number three, 
me, I try and put a major role on ideology, an ideology understood as not something specific to the diplomatic process, but as the role of broader intellectual currents in the affecting of state-to-state relations. So there is a discussion, and I take very seriously, the, I mean, I myself am not religious, but I take very seriously the role of religion, and in particular, I argue that it is wrong to think that in the West, religion ceased to be important after 1648 in international relations. I think that's a fundamental flaw and a misunderstanding of, of the consequences of Westphalia. And I also think religion is you know, consequential to the present day and remains so in uh, international relations uh, more broadly. Linked to ideology, I also deal with the interaction between what are apparently abstract intellectual propositions about international relations, the most famous, of course, being the balance of power, but more generally the idea of, as it were, international relations being some sort of action of Newtonian physics with predictable outcomes and predictable balance and the notion in which you can plan. And what I try to do repeatedly throughout is to emphasize the degree to which planning and policy are conditioned by um, rhetorically understood Good, uh, politicized intellectual strategies or looked at differently politics is in part an intellectual strategy but it's one in which you shouldn't expect it to be defined by self-styled intellectuals so I try to do that and then when we move towards the 20th century but I've already shown that in the dis- I hope in the discussion of the French Revolution I'm trying to argue that if you're looking at more modern I don't mean by that better or worse ideologies Communism, obviously, is what I engage with for the 20th century in communism, as much to do with China as it is to do with the Soviet Union. Um, one has to treat, take, treat these seriously and not regard them as defined or organized in terms of the formal structures of those states um, to do with foreign policy. And that, in a sense, what they do is they underline the danger of thinking of foreign policy in terms of the formal mechanisms. And if this is true of so-called revolutionary states, why should one imagine it's not true of non-revolutionary states as well? And then towards the very end, as you all know, um, I broaden out even more to discuss, you know, what I call, you know, the media-mediated world of external relations today. So to look at the wide variety and range of bodies, whether things like OPEC, um, you know, uh, at the international level, or lobbyists within states, in which which are all affecting the conduct of international relations. Mm. Well, thank you very much, yes, uh, for that outline and for bringing uh, to the listeners, uh, bringing to to their attention the kind of the main interventions that you make um, throughout the book. Um, diving into two specific matters that I was interested in and thought you, you might reflect upon a little bit. Um, in addition to the wish to avoid a, a kind of a completely Eurocentric narrative and also to avoid a narrow focus on conventional diplomatic actors and institutions, it seems that a larger point is to show that diplomacy is neither inherently benign nor easily separated from other and cruder forms of persuasion and indeed violent or subversive coercion, warfare, intelligence, threats of destruction, aggressive alliances, etc. So why is this important to stress in a long durée account of the nature of diplomacy, as you put it? Well, again, I mean, that's fascinating, and I think you're right. I mean, why it's important to stress is, I suppose, because it actually, in my view, helps that you have this broader notion of state-to-state relationships, but also linked to that, you don't see those as, as it were, separate to political mechanisms and other cultural mechanisms or mechanisms of debate within individual states. Now, where, where, and, you know, here I try to follow the theme during the book, um, there is also the question of the relationships of this with some kind of multilateral system, however one understands system. And there I think there are real uh, issues so, for example, I mean, to, and this does not exhaust the topic at all. Let's take a very simple one. If you believe that there is an international 
international system, however defined, do you believe that it is self-writing, or so in other words, if something goes wrong, the power becomes more more strong and becomes more aggressive, then other powers will naturally combine against it, which is a sort of fairly simple mechanism, a fairly simple explanation of an aspect of a self-writing mechanism. Or do you believe that you actually need to make choice in order for that to happen. In other words, it can easily be the case that there is no self-writing mechanism and a state becomes very strong and other states find it in their interest or follow their ideological supposition or just can't be bothered or frightened or more worried about COVID or something and pursue their own agenda uh, irrespective of that. Um, so the, and, and what I was trying to show in the book is that this very discussion of the international system is not one in which you can have a fixed notion across time that it itself is subject to different um, intellectual traditions which are culturally encoded in particular political space. So, for example, the attitude of the papacy in medieval Christendom or medieval Western Christianity would be one element, uh, but so also would be, for example, Chinese notions of hegemony uh, that were contemporaneous to it. Um, and what I was trying to suggest is therefore a much more tentative and much more conditional um, assessment of the so-called late 20th century order. And I tried to show there's a discussion in the book, for example, about um, German uh, attitudes and practice during the Third Reich um, and also about the Soviet Union. And one could argue, in other words, that the uh, post-1945 um, intellectual uh, and international order encapsulated in the United Nations but in other institutions and practices is much more tentative than people generally uh, envisage it. So there was very much that, again, as an intellectual agenda. I mean, I think I made fairly clear my views, and they're not, as I said, to underline the point, I do not want people to come along, come away from reading one of my books and say, wow, Jeremy, you're so right. What I want them to do is to say, that is an interesting contribution to a debate. I wonder where we can use that in order to interrogate, let's say, somebody saying his work on her or her work on early 20th century Latin American uh, international relations. So it's intended to be a conceptual contribution. I mean, I also, because I was writing very hard and with, with a lot of pain of concentration of thought, pack a lot in there. So there's a lot of, you know, evidence-based, archivally-based material, which I hope would be more specific of value to people working on a wide range of topics. But also, there's an attempt to reconceptualize a subject. And repeatedly, I've tried to reconceptualize subjects. I've done it with the recent book Yale has published on strategy. I did it with an earlier book that Indiana published on geopolitics and with an, an, a book that Indiana published separately on counterfactualism. What I've repeatedly tried to do is to take standard areas in which there is an established intellectual proposition and to reveal it to be a proposition, not an, a, not an orthodoxy that demands and requires uh, obedience when one's structuring one's more specific work. Yeah. Yes, uh, I entirely uh, agree with uh, with that last notion there, and, and it's all it also comes through uh, reading the book that that's uh, that's what you're trying to do. And uh, my second question is uh, related to that uh, uh, because there is a thread throughout the book in which you aim to dispel, as you write, a Whiggish tendency to pre present a positive developmental model of professionalism and institutional improvement for diplomats and foreign offices, unquote, and equally deliver a call to today's diplomats not to, as a reviewer wrote, forsake their traditional skills and functions in favor of easy sound bites. So there's a balance there where you try to, in a sense, dispel uh, what you could crudely call an ideology of diplomacy in a sense, and a narrative of where that comes from. And on the other hand, to retain some of the very important aspects of diplomacy in an age where 
we tend to disregard it or downplay their importance. So how do these two elements support each other in your account of the history of diplomacy? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what I would argue is that um, the principal job of the diplomat is honesty. And honesty in terms of reporting back to their home government what is the situation in the state in which they are um, they are you know located. Um, and so, for example, if you were the, the Cuban envoy in Venezuela, honesty would be not writing back that President Maduro is doing fantastically, but actually uh, you know analysing the situation, however unwelcome that might be to one's political masters in Havana. Um, and equally, uh, that it is important to try and represent the views of your government as accurately as possible. Now, I would argue that those two characteristics, which are obviously heavily affected by politics, I mean, the notion that modern Chinese diplomats are not going to be affected by the ideological suppositions coming out of Beijing is, is naive, uh, which is why I think you often get mistakes coming back in reporting. Uh, but those two characteristics, I think, were equally true if one was looking at... Um, people who were making reports, whether they were formally under, to be understood as diplomats or not, in, shall we say, the Peloponnesian War period, as today. So that the notion of an improvement is one that I would be wary of. Now, clearly, there have often been periods of more formal structuring, both in terms of the uh, hiring of diplomats and also, indeed, of the processing of documentation back uh, at uh, foreign you know, equivalent of the K-Dorsay. But that does not inherently mean that there is an improvement in the accuracy of the account or um, in uh, going either way, both reporting uh, what, what, you know, where one is and in making representations about the views of one's government. And so coming to the present day, one of the things that I'm worried about in terms of, uh, as you drew your attention to, sound bites, on the one hand, yes, state governments need to make uh, an effect, an attempt to influence the the area of opinion in other countries. I mean, that's the whole point of soft power. Uh, it's something which a number of states are very actively engaged with at the present moment. It is very important. But at the same time, in terms of um, the, the, as it were, formal process, one needs to be accurate. And the problem, if one is not accurate, is that things go wrong. All too many people in all too many organisations, diplomacy is not unique in this, uh, the military, politics as a whole, um, rely on... Um, rely on, as it were, telling people what they want to hear, or and promote people accordingly. I mean, there's a brilliant book in military history by Norman Dixon called On the Psychology of Military Incompetence, which basically deals with the, uh, this chap was a, uh, worked for the British Army, um, and it basically deals with why it is that in peacetime, you naturally promote people that are incompetent, and that their incompetence is revealed in wartime. Now, without there being the exact parallel, there's an interesting aspect of that that one could also read through into diplomacy, um, that the kind of looking the part, making the right comments, that might take, uh, you know, making the right sound bites internally and publicly, which might take you a long way forward, may actually mean that in, that in terms of a period of crisis, you are less useful because you are used to, as it were, a kind of institutionalised um, mendacity. As is also perhaps the case in politics, as we're finding out these days. Yes, or, or one has to say there are, I mean, if you look at fashionable opinions, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I agree with you on politics, but, you know, look at universities, look at academic life. I mean, if you make the right noises, if you say the right things at conferences, you're the protege of the right person, you tend to float upwards. And if you actually are an inconvenient person who asks difficult questions and actually swims against the tide, then you will be um, sort of discarded um, or, or marginalised. And I mean, what I find highly ironic is that academics do things like um, 
you know, uh, in the past when they look at uh, their subject, they use forms of historiography to study things like patronage. When they, at the present day, they all just take it as if it's some bland and obvious meritocratic system where when the small, the small talk, the small change of their conversation knows that it isn't. Now, if you go to diplomacy, which is something more important, um, you've got exactly the same. I mean, you, you take, for example, let me give you, let me give you an instance. It is very easy to write about, uh, from the archives, the uh, Foreign Office papers, to write about British foreign policy in 1786, 87, 88. Uh, there are good archival sources. Um, they're quite extensive, so it takes you quite a time to get through them. I did a book on British foreign policy from 1783 to 93, and I enjoyed immensely reading them through. But also, if you want to understand it, you have to really disinter the extent to which William Eden and James Harris, mm. the two leading diplomats in 1786-87, have got totally contradictory policies, but those are not really adequately reflected at all in the diplomatic papers, because the diplomatic papers have to, as it were, smooth this out. Mm. And you have to, as it were, understand the politics of this by looking at a whole different set of sources. Um, and I think that that is more generally the case when one looks at uh, diplomatic history in the past. But the problem is that it is much easier. I mean, you know, it's um, let's face it, if you're sitting there in some study in Oxford and can't be bothered to go to the archives at Kew, which was the usual pattern in the past, it was much easier to pontificate about the Westphalian system than to actually think or British foreign policy as an abstract than to actually look at the tensions within it because that involved hard work at a whole series of, uh, of, of, of you know, archival locations. And then once you've done the work, you know, any, any fool could establish a large archival, it works, it takes a hell of a lot of time, can establish a large archival uh, um, sort of, you know, suitcase, as it were, of notes. The problem then is to mine through it, to decide what is the significant intervention? Why does that occur? Why is it that somebody at a certain moment talking about the extent to which there is a crisis and therefore you have to follow policy A, why is it that that is more resonant than somebody else at the same moment talk, arguing that there is a crisis and therefore you have to follow policy B? And that is a really important thing. And you have to understand the nature of politics, the nature of resonances, who is saying things, why they are being listened to at particular moments. And that requires very hard work, concentrated thought, but also throwing aside these abstract notions and also in particular being aware that statements such as we have to do that because it's in the natural interest or, you know, that's how the international system works. You've got to be aware that people at the time knew these were rhetorical devices. They were using them, but they knew other people were using them in a contrary fashion. And, you know, as I said right at the very beginning, you've also got to look at those people who were influential but not not impressed. I mean, I give, gave you what I call the Treasury view. Repeatedly, you get the Treasury view, which is very potent in British history, in which, yes, there's a lot of froth being thrown up by people that saying the international order dictates, let's say, 1764, that we should be, you know, paying subsidies to Russia. And you've got a man like George Grenville at the Truth First Lord of the Treasury saying, well, look, this is bloody ridiculous. We've been left with an enormous debt from our last war. Are you seriously saying to me that when we're desperately worried about how on earth we're going to fit, push through new taxation with what its effect is going to be in North America or, or Britain politically, that we should be taking on additional commitments abroad? And what is fascinating is modern historians don't understand that. Mm. Or they regard the Treasury viewers in some respects stupid because they regard the people who sources they're looking at as ipso facto more consequential, or because they read from a modern narrative of their engagement, let's say, Brendan Sims, with his view that Britain shouldn't, shouldn't have done particularly 
particular thing was in European terms, he then reads that back into the 18th century. Instead of actually saying, well, there's a discontinuity there, you can have a view on the 18th century without you having to have a necessary view today. I mean, as I've already indicated, I am not religious. But if you know my work on international relations, on domestic history, you will know I very much argued for the significance of religion in the so-called Age of Enlightenment. But that doesn't mean I'm urging people to have a certain view today. But alas, all too many historians, and we're seeing this in the so-called culture wars today in Britain and the United States. I can't speak, alas, I don't know enough about uh, Denmark, though it is a lovely country. But we're seeing all too much of people who feel that they have to assert a view of the past because to do so underlines the credibility of their view of the present. Mm. Whereas in my view, that is just ridiculous. Well, thank you for that thorough answer and a very interesting answer. I think you also you touch upon at least three uh, major elements of, of diplomatic history that are important to keep in mind whatever period you're working on. One being that diplomacy or foreign services are um, vertically disciplinary in the sense that they create... Uh, certain ways of getting upwards as any institution uh, and that's that's important to keep in mind and the other one is that the, they are also horizontally disciplining in the sense that they uh, strive to create one coherent narrative that they get out of that system which means that it's difficult reading just the papers from the archives to discern where the disagreements are what the tensions are as you say and the last one is obviously that intra-institutional battles uh, cannot be understood from the MFAs or the foreign services alone. So I think that's three very, very important takeaways, apart from the fact that we've been, we need to be allowed to remove ourselves also from the, the discourses, the political discourses of today to, to when we write history and not be afraid of them. So thank you for that. Uh, I'll move along to kind of the, the last two points which are conjoined um, and, and two questions that deal with the present, if that's all right with you. Um, of yes, so, so last, uh, how, and you've touched upon this in, in many ways, but, but how does the book speak to the crisis of multilateralism and Western-led diplomacy uh, and the ascent of China today? Um, that's the first question, and, and the other one is kind of uh, conjoined with it, so I'll take it uh, together with the first one. In light of the, the past 10 years, say, of political development since the publication of this book, including the US's turn to crude bilateralism, the gutting of the State Department, and, and perhaps a more overt use of family members and court loyalists as envoys, although that's always been the case, would you change or emphasize anything differently in your narrative, or does it rather vindicate your, your kind of dual emphasis on diplomatic pluralism and the importance of the core practices of diplomacy? Well, those, those are fascinating questions. Um, first of all, in terms of uh, China and pessimism today, um, yes, I mean, I think in a sense I was already, when I was writing in 2010, I had already uh, taken the view that the Western hegemony, so-called, you know, Fukuyama and the idea of a, of a moment in history, I thought that that had been overplayed for the early 90s. And to me, the great strategic realignment of the early 2000s with uh, the um, Russia and China getting closer, the uh, collapse of the China-America political relationship, that in a sense, the whatever you might mean by the international order or certainly a Western-dominated international order had already collapsed. So in a sense, what I would see as happening now is a bringing through to fruition, one that is supercharged because China is becoming more wealthy, because Chinese expansion is more on the oceanic side than on the landward side, and therefore, as it were, is more obviously leading to tensions with the United States. I mean, the, the point I would make there is if, for example, you know, China and India have a contested boundary, as does in maritime terms China and Japan, if, Chi if the Chinese were following the equivalent, as it were, say, the rattling against India, they're doing it to a lesser extent um, uh, that they were doing in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, then I think the United States would be less directly to the forefront of 
attention. I'm not so sure of that, but nevertheless, I think that it's the maritime character of current Chinese geopolitics that is particularly um, unsettling. Um, but no, I mean, to my mind, it was already a case that the international so-called order, because what I try to argue is that in my book is that order was always more precarious, more precarious, more contingent, more conjunctural than it than it people tended to realise. But that had already failed. And the other thing I was saying is, and I agree entirely with you, that in terms of private diplomacy, in terms of the non-use of formal mechanisms, that already was not just far advanced, but again, it was part of a historical continuum. So if you look at, for example, the links between, and the method of the links between um, the Putin, Putin entourage in Russia and the Assad entourage in uh, Syria, or, and here's a different regime, different government, it's a democratically elected government, between uh between Russia and uh, the Netanyahu group in Israel, mm. Netanyahu and Putin have reasonably close relationships, you will find that in those cases, the personal relationships and often the reliance on individuals who are not part of a formal mechanism is very much to the fore. And I would argue that that gives you a direct continuity in the past, that this was more commonly the case. So in other words, the notion of modernity and modernization in terms of a professionalised diplomatic service which operated in accordance with rational planning through clear-cut international mechanisms and that that system would spread around the world and you wrote your history of diplomacy accordingly from, you know, as it were, the year in which Brazil developed the same mechanisms of Paris or the year in which Japan starts sending envoys abroad. And that kind of account, which in some ways was a very comforting account, uh, but as you yourself said, there is a very strong Whiggish component to it. That account now looks interesting. I, it's, it's historicized, but I don't find it tremendously convincing as a view of the present moment. And what I was trying to say is, if you go back into the past, it's also less convincing as an account of the past. Hmm. Well, I think uh, that's a very nice way to end a very interesting interview. Professor Jeremy Black, I thank you very much for your time. Well, I'm delighted. I really think uh, we discussed earlier before we started to record this, and I think there is actually a, a almost an echo here of the way in which international relations are changing. And one of the things we were discussing is and I made the suggestion that um, mechanisms such as podcasts and such like are in fact part of a decentering of the traditional hierarchies of the academic world that you know you all went and had a nice conference somewhere and uh, it was organized at particular places and you had to do your research in particular places and etc etc and I now think I've, I've felt this for a long time I've argued for a very long time that one must be wary of judging ideas by uh, their labels and individuals by their institutions. And what I think is that these kind of networks that you are developing are tremendously important for engaging a broader way of understanding the subject and one in which there are not the notion of definitive works by a small number of individuals holding positions in a small number of places. So my very best wishes to you and I hope we can do this again.